Japan as the country continues to deal with record-breaking numbers of new coronavirus infections. Despite COVID-19 cases surging after the recent Tokyo Olympics, reaching an average of 23,000 new cases a day, vaccination rates in Japan have trailed behind other countries in the region, with only around 40% of the population fully vaccinated as of the end of August 2021. For some commentators, the slow vaccination rate has only confirmed what British medical journal The Lancet reported in 2020, that Japan has one of the lowest levels of vaccine confidence in the world, resulting from recent high-profile cases of alleged harms from vaccines, such as the HPV vaccine in the mid-2010s. Indeed, fewer than 25% of respondents agreed that vaccines were safe and effective before the pandemic started, and 36% in a 2020 NHK poll said they had no desire to get the COVID vaccine. To make matters worse, just this week, Japanese officials suspended the use of 1.63 million doses of the Moderna vaccine due to the presence of foreign materials. Sadly, this was not before the death of two patients who received the contaminated shots, raising fears about the possible side effects of vaccines for some. Still, vaccination sites in the Shibuya ward of Tokyo were overwhelmed with patients immediately after opening in recent days. Forcing officials to institute a haphazard lottery system that left many in line disappointed and without shots, while leading to new frustrations with the rollout and adding new questions about the government's handling of the COVID crisis. When were the first vaccines introduced to Japan, and what was the local reaction to them at that time? What caused popular attitudes towards vaccines in Japan to shift away from acceptance to the skepticism we see today? How does vaccine hesitancy differ between Japan and the U.S.? And what role does the media in both countries play in promoting fear of vaccines? And is it really the case that the Japanese public is distrustful of vaccines? Or is it actually public health officials who are the hesitant ones? I'm Tristan Gruneau, and this is Japan on the Record. For more on the history of vaccine hesitancy in Japan, I talked with Dr. Andrew Gordon, Lee and Juliet Folger Fund Professor of History at Harvard University, as well as Dr. Michael Reich, Taro Takemi Research Professor of International Health Policy at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health at Harvard University. Dr. Gordon and Dr. Reich are co-authors of The Puzzle of Vaccine Hesitancy in Japan, recently published in the Journal of Japanese Studies. I started by asking Dr. Gordon to talk about how this collaboration came about and how the research was motivated by the ongoing COVID pandemic. Sure, it motivated our work profoundly, or, or that was the motivation, the current crisis. I had been in Japan on a sabbatical when the pandemic broke out and had dipped into a little amateur analysis of the situation. My field is modern history, not public health. While I was in Japan in the spring of 2020 to the summer, and then back in the United States, I was continuing to watch developments in Japan. 
The good results of the vaccine trials were made public by Pfizer and then Moderna in November, December, and preparation in the United States was underway to roll out the vaccines, and there was tremendous commitment on the part of the government to get the vaccines into people's arms, and there was tremendous excitement on the part of much of the population to receive the vaccines. And yet, I looked at what was happening in Japan, and in December into early January, there was very, very little buzz about the vaccines. And this really baffled me. I knew that the Japanese ability to contain the crisis, like elsewhere in Asia, was not so bad. It was actually pretty good. So I thought maybe that's part of the reason. But at the same time, the Olympics were looming. And so to keep the population safe from athletes who might be coming who were infected and just to keep everybody safe, I was assuming there'd be a rush to get the vaccine out the door. And that wasn't happening. And I know Michael as a colleague at Harvard, but we had never cooperated or collaborated on any research before. But I certainly knew that his field was public health with a deep engagement with Japan. So I shot Michael an email in late December and said, what's going on in Japan? I don't get it. It's like crickets. So Andy and I had each written something earlier that year about how Japan had done a good job in the early phases of the pandemic with masks and social distancing and things seemed to be under control in Japan. So when we were talking by email in December and Andy said, what's going on? I said, well, you know, it would be nice if someone who had a good understanding of Japanese history and the nuances of Japanese society looked back at the history of how Japan has responded to vaccines. At which point Andy wrote back and said, well, are you suggesting that both of us do it? So that's really how the collaboration started. As you mentioned, your article goes back and covers 150 years of vaccines in Japan, dating all the way back to the Meiji period. So can you tell us more about what the first vaccines to come to Japan were for and what the local reaction to them was at that time? Well, the first vaccine to come into Japan was the smallpox vaccine. And not that far after it was developed in Western countries. So in the 1860s, the so-called generarian smallpox vaccine began to be imported into Japan. There was some concern, especially on the part of doctors of so-called Chinese medicine, which was a Japanese adaptation of traditional Chinese medicine that was called Kampo in Japan. There was concern among those practitioners in the 1850s and 60s that vaccines were an illegitimate or a phony or even an evil thing to do. One doctor published a screed where he called vaccines a witchcraft that deceives the public. And they felt that in their understanding of disease, smallpox stemmed from poison in the body that had to be allowed to leave the body. And they feared that the vaccine would inhibit that process. That said, for the most part in an era starting especially in the late 1860s into the 1870s and 80s of a lot of enthusiasm for modernizing Japan in many realms of society and knowledge, there was not that much resistance. There was some concern that foreign substances, whether they're foreign imported vaccines or just would be wrong or dangerous. Cowpox drawn from cows was also a method for vaccination in the case of smallpox, bovine injections into humans. So there was some concern, but the Japanese government began to mandate smallpox vaccines in the late 19th and early 20th century, and there wasn't much resistance at the time. I think it's important to note that while there was resistance from the Kampo practitioners in Japan, this is not something that is unique to Japanese society. 
In other words, the reaction to the Janarian vaccine, a negative reaction and resistance to it, happened in many countries and many societies. There were fears, there was lack of understanding, there was active resistance by different groups, but it took particular shapes in each society according to its own history and its own values. And throughout the article and throughout the work, we've tried to understand Japan's reactions, both as what is particular to Japan, but also how it reflects broader themes in global history and things that happen in other societies, although in different forms and with different expressions. On that note, there's a very insightful line in the article, I thought, about how reactions to vaccines are the product of a constellation of policy, politics, and public opinion that plays out differently in different societies. So how does this constellation shape reactions to vaccines in Japan? First, to accept the vaccines, and then again, shifting the other way towards hesitancy to vaccines. Sure. Let me start out with that and then turn it over to Michael. The idea that Japan was behind the West and needed to become modern, and that meant bringing in the forms of knowledge and the practices related to knowledge and science of the West. That idea really took powerful root in Japan in the second half of the 19th century and into the 20th century. And I think that's the foundation of the widespread acceptance of vaccines, which by the early 20th century came to be seen as a modern and effective way to bring health to the nation. And of course, the government project for Japan, it's sometimes summed up in the slogan, Fukoku Kyohei, or rich country and strong military. To build a strong nation meant to build healthy bodies, whether it's for work and industry and for capitalism, or whether it's for the military. So vaccines were promoted actively by the government and for the most part welcomed by the population. There were no national projects of routine vaccinations for any disease in Japan, but there were very active programs to bring vaccines to people in the case of various outbreaks of disease or epidemics, whether it was cholera, whether it was typhoid, and then even in 1920-21, the so-called Spanish flu. So I think the excitement with the modern carried over and the faith in modern science carried over across that era and into the post-war period so that, for instance, when the polio outbreak hit Japan as it was hitting much of the world in the 1950s, there was very little resistance to vaccines. There was tremendous public enthusiasm and the government was initially a little concerned about importing a polio vaccine rather than making their own, but public opinion was so strong that it very quickly moved to import and inoculate huge numbers of people. I think it was 13 or so million children in just one month in June of 1961 received the polio vaccine scene, which compares well to how even the COVID vaccine has been rolled out. So I think that enthusiasm for modernization was at the heart of the matter. I think that it's important to recognize that in the immediate post-war period, Japan adopted a national law under the pressure and guidance of the occupation that made vaccination a national mandate. And that law was considered among the most progressive and advanced laws for vaccination in the world. That represented both an official and public acceptance of vaccination in Japan. At the same time, in 1948, one of the production facilities for the diphtheria vaccine had production problems 
the vaccine itself was contaminated and it resulted in over 40 deaths of people who received the vaccine. That particular incident was officially hushed up by the Japanese and occupation authorities, and it never developed into a significant social expression of resistance or opposition at that time. But it remained a long-standing problem in post-war Japan. Then in the mid-1960s, late 1960s, there were a series of incidents of harm associated with vaccines that resulted in both an expression of popular resistance and lawsuits against the government for specific problems. Those problems and harms associated with vaccine then developed into a social movement that became stronger over time and eventually resulted in changes in national vaccine policy by the Japanese government. To go back to your question, Tristran, this shows the way in which policy, politics, and public opinion have interacted to shape and change national policy on vaccines in Japan. Yes, I think the important thing to keep in mind is that although a succession of issues of vaccine harm, in some cases alleged harm that we believe is only possibly and not definitely and perhaps not in fact related to vaccines. In other words, attributing a problem to be a side effect of a vaccine is an inexact endeavor. So whether it was real or imagined, there were these incidents of vaccine harm that led to a politics of opposition and demand for compensation that Michael's just described. At the same time, and even though the government did back down from its heavy mandate for vaccines, public acceptance of routine vaccines, the routine childhood vaccines that had been at the heart of the occupation mandate, that remained very, very high and remains very high. So the shift was not a total shift. It was a partial shift. And it didn't lead to a deep anti-vaccination movement across the board in Japan. Speaking of concerns about how the safety of vaccines lead to social movements and opposition, the U.S. right now is, of course, going through yet another wave of COVID with the Delta variant, which many commentators have blamed on vaccine hesitancy in the U.S. We might even say that this is another global variation of that theme of a consolation of policy, politics, and public opinion that you write about in the article. So do you see similarities between the U.S. and Japanese cases, or are these result of completely different factors? So that's a really interesting question. And it's in some sense the question of how do the anti-vax movements in Japan and the U.S. compare? That, in fact, could be a great doctoral thesis question or a great book question. So what's really interesting that we found out is that if you think about the U.S. movement, it has roots sometimes in strong religious feelings of those groups that are opposed to modern medical treatment. And it also has roots in libertarian values, the notion of I'm not going to let the government tell me what to do. And both of those themes appear in the current debate over vaccines related to COVID in the United States. Japan does not have that kind of either strong religious sentiment or strong libertarian values. What we found, which was in some ways one of the surprises for both of us, was the way in which the expressions of concern about vaccines tie back to victims-based social movements. So the people who see themselves as victims of previous vaccine harm, including all the way back to diphtheria in 1948, 
has parallels for work that I did in the early 1970s on the anti-pollution movement. So it was the people who saw themselves as suffering from harms related to the unintended consequences of vaccines that became the basis for opposing the use of vaccines in Japan. I think the most prominent example of this is the vaccine for human papillomavirus in Japan, which went from almost 70% coverage to less than 1% coverage in a very short time period. It's interesting the way in which the HPV vaccine movement in Japan has had connections with some politicians in the ruling Liberal Democratic Party. So the way in which anti-vax feelings have become politically expressed in Japan has been fascinating to look at. And that led us to one of the other surprises of our research, of things that we found, which was in contrast to the Lancet article, which talked about the Japanese public having low confidence in vaccines based on surveys, what we found was a hesitancy among Japanese political leaders and Japanese public health bureaucrats to enthusiastically and positively support vaccines. Yes. What Michael just described was not only his surprise, but my surprise. We both started out, I think, having been aware, well, Michael made me aware of the Lancet article that was just recent, maybe two or three years ago, based on opinion survey in Japan showing tremendous public skepticism of vaccines. And so we assumed that article was on the money. And so we were going to look for the roots of this public hesitance. And what we found was that among the Japanese public, with the notable exception, but I think it's an exception, of those who reacted to what they understood to be harm from specific vaccines, there was quite high acceptance and no resistance at all to the idea that every child should receive routine vaccines to protect them throughout their life. That was not politicized. That type of opposition just wasn't there. And we found the greater hesitancy to be among, as Michael just said, public health authorities who we think are afraid of lawsuits. And I should also say that the media, as I was watching NHK by satellite, the media has reflected the concern with vaccine harm with a lot of coverage of concerns with side effects. I haven't done this systematically, but I think if you were to compare the American mainstream media, maybe Fox is different, I'm not sure, how the American mainstream media treated the first vaccines that were administered in the late fall, early winter to the treatment of the first vaccines in Japan, which weren't until I think it was around March. It's very different. The former were, oh, we're so excited. We're weeping with gratitude and joy. And the latter were, oh, I hope I don't get any side effect from this vaccine. And so I would say the public health bureaucracy, the politicians, and also in some degree, the mainstream media had this concern or hesitancy, but the population didn't necessarily follow. And that hesitancy by the politicians and the bureaucrats was really a consequence of the litigation and social movements related to harms associated with vaccines. You know, I think it's important just to remember that vaccines in some ways are the quintessential public health technology, but they're also a strange technology because they're not curative. You're not sick and you don't take a vaccine and it then cures the disease and you feel better. It is a prospective protection. 
So you take the vaccine, something from the outside, put it into your body to get your body to create the ability to fight some future harm, some future disease that you'll never see. So it prevents you from getting really sick. It prevents you from going into the hospital. And I think it's that prospective protection based on scientific evidence that requires people to take a certain leap of faith in the direction of science. And that protection against something that doesn't happen is what requires people to have a belief in vaccines and also opens up the potential for all kinds of emotions and social expressions of fear related to vaccines. And on the topic of surprises from your research, one of the things that always struck me as surprising when it came to COVID-19 was how, with all of the comparisons to the 1918 pandemic, nothing much had really changed as far as best practices for fighting the pandemic. Back then, the best protection was to wear masks, practice social distancing, and now, 100 years later, that still seems to be the best protection. That is before the vaccine, anyway. So now, looking back at your research, is there anything that we've learned about history of pandemics, vaccines, and vaccine hesitancy to make sure that we're not doing the same things in the next pandemic, whether that's another 100 years from now or much sooner? Oh, you know, that's such a tough question because in the first half year or maybe three quarters of a year of the pandemic, as I observed it anyway, comparing Japan with other countries and also comparing other Asian societies, it seemed to me that in Japan, in South Korea, in Taiwan, elsewhere in Asia, there was an abiding by protective measures short of vaccines that, yes, were old, but worked. And there was a kind of reaffirmation of that. What these societies, including Japan, have going for them, I think, is the fact that that type of preventive public health behavior did not become politicized to this day hasn't become politicized. I mean, some people are lazier than others, are more willing to abide than others, but it hasn't become politicized in a significant way. So the lesson to me for Japan is to continue to feel confident in the society to follow wise public health practices that were deeply embedded pre-COVID-19 and carried forward during COVID-19, but to change the approach to vaccination, because I doubt this will be the last of these types of pandemics that we're going to face in the future. You know, Japan did surprisingly a good job with the old technologies, the technologies that they were used to, the face masks, social distancing, and a certain amount of just stay at home, the physical barriers, which as you noted, were the same kinds of approaches used 100 years ago. What is also true is that Japan did not do so well with the new technology. I don't think that we would give them as good a grade in managing the new vaccines and the new technologies compared to how they did with the old technologies. I think one of the lessons for me is that Japan's political leaders and Japan's public health leaders could learn a lot by looking at the past and by reflecting on the challenges of the past in dealing both with the old technologies and the social history of new vaccines as they were introduced in Japan. When did they work well? When were they readily accepted? When were they resisted and why? And what could Japan do now to make more effective use 
of the technologies and to introduce them in a timely way in order to have a full protection of public health. I think both Andy and I feel that the Olympics this summer could have been very different, a very different social experience if Japan had started its vaccination in a more timely fashion and succeeded in vaccinating the entire population three or four months earlier. Yes, I agree completely. It's really sad and ironic because right now Japan is vaccinating people at a very rapid pace. And it will probably be the case by mid to late fall that percentages of people in Japan vaccinated are at among the highest in the world. And had the Japanese authorities moved more aggressively in the winter and into the early spring, the country would have been at a very different place by the time the Olympics began and probably the games themselves would have been different. I mean, it's not really all about the Olympics. The health of the people in Japan also would have been better protected. You know, I think that this for us showed us the importance of studying the history of public health and how looking at the history of public health can actually help you better understand both the current dilemmas that we live with and the ways in which those dilemmas can be managed more effectively. This is true, of course, not just for Japan, but for every society around the world. I'm Tristan Gruno, visiting assistant professor of modern Japanese history at Pacific University, and this has been another episode of Japan on the Record. Stay tuned for future episodes to hear scholars of Japan bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news. Thank you for listening.